Our sermon text for this morning is out of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7. We'll observe the whole chapter because of the length of the text. I won't open the message with the reading from the text, but I'll read much of it throughout the sermon. You will really benefit from having your Bible open to the text as I'll refer to several verses throughout the sermon. One of the greatest challenges in parenting is knowing when to protect our children from folly and hardship and knowing when to let them learn from their experiences. You might be familiar with the, ter with the term helicopter parent, a parent who hovers over their children to make sure they're safe. Some parents take this to such an extreme that some have even begun using no longer helicopter parents, but lawnmower parents. Parents who are no longer satisfied with hovering over their children, so now they're literally staying on top of their children. Well, I, know, I think we all know this isn't good. Growth comes from enduring hardship. Growth comes from overcoming sin. And at times, parents may not know the difference between protecting a child from harm and preventing a child from growing. Thankfully, God is wise in every way we are not. And God knows the difference between growth and protection, the need for growth and the need for protection. God knows that growth is more important than comfort. God knows that sanctification is necessary. And sanctification very often comes by the way of trials. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see, sanctification is difficult. Sanctification is necessary. But ultimately, the purpose of sanctification is to produce fruit of eternal life. So as we dive into our text today, we'll look at sin and sorrow. We're going to see that sorrows are brought about in our lives because life is hard. But we'll see that sorrows also come because we sin. And there is a connection between sin and sorrows. But this message is not ultimately about sin and sorrows. But about what sin and sorrows ultimately lead us to. This message is about the purpose of God behind the sorrows we experience and the sin that lingers in our lives. God is working all of these things out so that we may grow in wisdom. 
message is a reminder that it is only through sorrow, through the sorrow of sanctification, that we can experience the joys of eternal life. Ultimately, our hearts may desire a life that is free of sorrow. But the hope that we have of one day being fully redeemed by Christ depend on us enduring the sorrows of today. So, before we dive into our text today, take a moment and think about this past week. What has grieved you this past month, this past year, your whole life? What griefs have you experienced? How have you been disheartened, disappointed, disillusioned? Have you been cheated, neglected, sinned against? Have others hurt you? Have you hurt others? Have others disappointed you? Have you disappointed others? Have you embraced or, have, or are you struggling with sin? What parts of your life do you wish had never happened? I can't change the circumstances in your life. And God wouldn't change the circumstances in your past. But here's what God does. He gives us purpose in the midst of pain and suffering. He will give you purpose in your sorrow. He will give you purpose in your mourning. Listen to what Psalm 30 verse 5 says. Weeping may tarry for the night, but... It doesn't last forever for those who are in Christ, right? Joy comes in the morning. So as we approach our text today, I want to consider three points. First, suffering is a great teacher. Second, wisdom is a worthy pursuit. And third, sin is a terrible deceiver. So consider with me first, verses 1 through 4, suffering is a great teacher. We're going to focus primarily here on verses 1 through 4 on this point. And, and the first statement in verse 1 makes a lot, of a lot of sense. But it sounds a little disconnected from the theme of suffering. The preacher says in verse 1, A good name is better than, pre than precious ointment. Okay, we know that. That's just plain old biblical wisdom, right? But then he goes on to challenge our natural concepts of wisdom. He says that the day of death is better than the day of birth. Does that make sense? Look at verse 2. He says, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Look again at verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter. Do these statements speak of our experience? Do they make sense? 
So why does the preacher start with such a clear statement of logic, but then goes on to make statements that push us beyond our comfort zone? I think he's saying that just as the first statement that he made about reputation is clear and logical, so are the other statements on the superiority of sorrow over feasting. These verses do make us a little uncomfortable, don't they? If the day of death is better than the day of birth, what does that say about the day of birth? Should it even take place? If mourning is better than feasting, should we ever look for happiness in this life? These, may, these verses make us uncomfortable, but for the preacher, this, all of these statements are the same. There is a strange comfort that we receive in these verses. This is why sometimes Ecclesiastes is referred to as an enigma. Who can understand it? I was texting with a friend this past week and he said, I hear you preaching through Ecclesiastes. I recently read through it. And it was very sobering and yet strangely encouraging. That's true. I thought he was spot on. Sobering and yet encouraging. Why? Because Ecclesiastes is a realistic book. Ecclesiastes is a book that touches the reality of human experience in such a way that we say, he gets me. He understands me. Now, we all know this, right? That very often the house of feast feels superficial. And yet a funeral is such a reality check for all of us, isn't it? Ecclesiastes speaks a message that if we're truthful, we would admit resonates deeply with us. And this is why Ecclesiastes is so relevant, because suffering only finds true comfort in reality. When someone is suffering superficial statements, superficial events don't help much. The truth is a better companion than lies when we're suffering. Why? Because even if a lie may help someone feel better momentarily, the truth helps us know how to navigate life better. No one goes to a doctor expecting to hear lies. We want the truth about our health even if it's bad news. Of course, we want it with tact and good bedside manners, but when we go to a doctor, we want the truth nonetheless. And this is true of our spiritual condition as well. We must be people who are thankful when others point out the truth to us. We must be people who are eager to hear others pointing out the speck in our eyes so that we can grow. So, are you a person that is open to the truth? 
are you a person who enjoys when someone is real with you? Are you approachable? Do you love the truth, truthful lips of your brothers and sisters? Do people feel comfortable confronting you in your sin? When was the last time you received correction from someone who loves you? When we receive suffering along with thankfulness, we grow. And this is why the preacher tells us that mourning is better than feasting. Look halfway through verse 2. Notice the word for. Now look halfway through verse 3. Notice the word for. The preacher is kind to us. He doesn't just tell us that suffering is better than feasting. He tells us why. And he grounds the reason with the word for. The word for is giving us the ground for his argument. He's saying something shocking and something counterintuitive. But he tells us the reason. Why is the house of mourning better than the house of feasting? Why should we rejoice in our sufferings? Why should we embrace grief when grief comes? Because death is the end of all mankind. In other words, the preacher says, death is inevitable and you are next. The inevitability of death demands that we prepare ourselves for it. So the preacher loves us enough to tell us when you go to a funeral, you're actually doing something greater than when you go to a feast. Considering the day of death is better than considering the day of birth. Why? Because how we finish life matters. How we finish life matters. If there was a way to avoid death, we should be focusing on that. But since there's no way to avoid physical death, we need to prepare ourselves for it. Psalm 90 verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Considering the length of our lives uh, cause wisdom to be born in our hearts. In other words, counting our days, remembering that we're marching towards death adds to our wisdom. Look at Hebrews 9.27. And just as it appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. This is why what the preacher is saying to us is so important, right? Death seals our destiny. After death, we'll be judged. So how do we prepare for death and judgment? We believe in Christ and we live for him. No one who trusts in Christ should ultimately fear death because death for us is victory. Our destiny is sealed and eternity with Christ is assured. This is the great hope we have. I mean, we plan for retirement, but do we plan for death? We plan for vacation. But do we plan for death? We prepare our children for college, but do we prepare them for death? 
I am convinced that Satan's greatest weapon against humanity is not wickedness. Satan is not primarily concerned about leading us to live our lives with as much wickedness as we can. He doesn't need to do that. Satan just needs for us to be distracted. Distracted. Not thinking about death. Not considering the end of life. And then we'll fill our lives with things that don't matter. And when death comes, we'll be unprepared. Friend, listen to me. The devil is interested in your soul. And he will do everything that he can to keep you distracted in this life. But God is interested in your soul as well. So much so that he sent his son to defeat death and Satan. So you can face death without fear. Just this past week, a doctor was trying to encourage our brother Mickey in the hospital. So he was telling him about positivity. Mickey, you need to think positive thoughts. You need to have positive thinking. Mickey's response to that doctor was, I'm strong because I have Christ in my heart. I will be fine and I have hope even in death. These are the words of a man who is not distracted. Why? Because he's considering the house of mourning rather than the house of feasting. And he's coming up with the right answer. Jesus is my hope in life and in death. Well, let's consider now my second point. Wisdom is a worthy pursuit. Now, it's not surprising that following the statements considering death, the preacher would immediately lead us to think of the importance of wisdom. This is what he's trying to do in this section. He's trying to teach us wisdom that at times is counterintuitive. Wisdom that is not counterintuitive, right, is natural. But he's trying to press the side of wisdom that is not intuitive. So he wants us to pursue wisdom. Why? Because the pursuit of wisdom is the pursuit of life itself. Wisdom is not optional for believers. Growing in maturity, growing in wisdom, growing in our knowledge of Christ is not an option. There's no such a thing as a Christian who hasn't grown in decades. There is no plateau for the Christian life. The Christian life is a life of constant pursuit of wisdom. There's no such thing a Christian who is comfortable with his folly. Why? Because fools do not inherit eternal life. Proverbs 8, 35 and 36, speaking of wisdom personified. For whoever finds me, wisdom, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love Death. Do you see the connection between wisdom and life 
folly, and death. Friends, being wise, being mature, growing in Christ, knowing Him, serving His church, living godly lives. These things are not optional for us. If we're not growing in these things, we are not believers. Believers grow because believers love Christ. And Christ is the wisdom of God. Look at 1 Corinthians 22 through 24. Just 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. To say that we can grow old and not grow in wisdom is to say that we can grow old and reject Christ. But there's a problem. We all know that in different ways we're foolish. Do you know that? Do you know that about yourself? Are there areas in your life that are still plagued with foolishness? Do you know that to be true? Listen to this. One of the marks of the wise person is that he or she is very aware of their lingering struggle with folly. If you look at yourself and you think of yourself as the standard of wisdom, you're a fool. If you look at yourself and you understand that you're growing in wisdom and you're still struggling with falling in some ways, you're wise. You're wise. Look at verses 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. Interesting statement. Right? Even under the sun, there's an aspect in which we can see wisdom. Verse 12, now remember in chapter 5, he spoke very, very lowly of, of money. But listen to what he says here. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. Right? Do you protect your money? Right? Do you guard it? What about your wisdom? Do you protect your wisdom like you protect your money? Or better than you protect your money? Do you put more value in your money or do you put more value in your wisdom? And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. You know, I wonder if, if you're to be asked the question, what are some of the most important things in your life? I wonder where you would rate gaining wisdom. Gaining wisdom. Children, have you ever been the question, what would you like to do or to be when you grow up? Here is a great answer that you can always give. I want to be wise. I want to be wise. So let's pursue the wisdom that the preacher is imparting here. Let's see how wisdom is demonstrated in these verses. Now, I want to say, I'm not going to be exhausted here, exhaustive here in these verses because we've seen the theme of wisdom a lot already in Ecclesiastes. So if you want to think more about wisdom, you can go to our church's website and you can listen to our whole series on Ecclesiastes. Um, so I'm going to move fast through some of these, but I want you to see these things in the text. So look at verse 5. 
wisdom is demonstrated through meekness. Meekness is different from weakness. Meekness is like the virtue of a horse. Is a horse, uh, does a horse serve humans well because they're weak? By no means. Horses serve humans well because they have control over their power. Right? That's meekness. We've already seen this, right? Teachability is a sign of wisdom, maturity. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. The wise gravitates towards truth-tellers. The wise doesn't mind getting corrected. And when the wise hears correction, the wise holds on to it like you would hold on to gold because it's precious. We also see that wisdom is demonstrated through patience. Look at verse 8. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. And the patient is better than the proud. I wonder if you ever say of yourself, I just don't have patience. You know, something that I've heard a lot is I'm running out of patience, right? I try to refrain from saying this to my children, though it's often true that I run out of patience. Because, here's why, I shouldn't run out of patience. There's no reason why I should run out of patience if patience comes from God. And God has an infinite source of patience that He's giving me. So when I lose my patience with my children, who is at fault? I am. I am. I have not lived in life of the fruit of the Spirit that has been made available to me. So, if I'm out of patience with my children, that's not their problem. That's my problem. Right? And I need to recognize that before them. And I need to recognize that before God. It's interesting that patience here is pitted against pride. I wonder if you've ever thought of impatience as being the result of pride. It makes sense, doesn't it? Impatience is a byproduct of an inflated view of self. You're inconveniencing me, so I am not going to be patient with you. We think we're here to be served, so when we're not served, we become impatient. But patience comes through the, to us through the Spirit. And the Bible teaches us that we are great, not when we're served but when we are servants of all. Another way that wisdom is demonstrated here is through self-control. Very similar to patience. But look at verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. Why? Because anger is dangerous. Anger likes to live rent-free in the heart of the fool. The problem is not anger itself. The Bible talks about God being angry. But the, the problem is this quick anger. Do not be quick to become angry. Anger that is reactive rather than anger that is a response to injustice. A little bit of anger can contaminate the whole person. We think it's okay to have a little bit of road rage. Then we think, I'm tired. I have the right to be angry at my wife, at my children. 
then we realize that anger is just making its way into even deeper parts of our lives. Anger, but be, dealt, be angry, and but be dealt with sin from its inception. Finally, consider that wisdom is also demonstrated through realism. Realism. Wisdom keeps us from falling into the trap of nostalgia. Nostalgia only tells partial truths. It reminds us of the good things of the past, but it keeps us from remembering the hardships. Have you ever gone back to the place where you grew up thinking that it would be just bliss? And you show up and you're there for one day, the second day you start realizing that things are not so much like you expected them to be. Your interactions with people are not exactly how you thought they would be. The place was not so idyllic as you thought it would be. You know what that is? That is a reality check for nostalgia. Often we can think that the past was so glorious that we live our lives trying to get back there. And we forget that the way forward is forward. We look at the past with joy and thankfulness, and we should. But we know that the Lord is leading us not back to the Red Sea. right? The Red Sea was a place of great deliverance. The Red Sea was a place of great work from God. But, but the people of Israel should not go back to the Red Sea. right? Why? Because across the Jordan, there was a land flowing with milk and honey. And God wanted them to go there. And we live in the same way. Look at verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. We can fall into this trap with our culture, can't we? The glorious 80s. The country is so religious, so churched. But were they really glorious? Do you know how many people I meet constantly that made a profession of faith in the 80s and 90s and have shown no evidence of genuine conversion in their lives? We can think about this in our church, can't we? If we could just get back to doing the things that we used to do in the past. Well, we are thankful and we honor the past of our church. But the question before us is not how did we used to do things, but how does God want us to do things? Sometimes we'll recover the past. Other times we'll move past the past because we must not fall into the trap of nostalgia. Because that's the doing of fools. Realism should lead us to know that God is in control of our lives. And if we are going to grow, we need to discern His will and not ours. Look at verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? Okay? 
So in other words, the preacher is saying, if God has determined for this to be crooked, give up. Don't try. The same is true about something being straight, right? Our goal in life is not to discern what we want to do with our lives, but it is to discern what God has determined to do with our lives. Verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. That's the second time he uses this word in these two verses. Consider what? God has made the one, the day of prosperity, as well as the other, the day of the adversity, so that men may not find out anything that will be after him. In other words, if God has so ordained your life that you're going or you have gone through a season of suffering, that is not any different than saying God has so ordained my life so that I could enjoy bliss. Suffering is brought to us in the day that God appointed suffering to, to happen. And bliss comes from the hand of the Lord as well. So we can walk through suffering with faith, not asking, Lord, what is going on? Where are you? And God responding back to us, I'm growing you. I'm stretching you. Because I'm more, I'm more concerned with your growth than with your comfort. Finally, let's spend a little bit of time considering sin, a terrible deceiver. The theme of wisdom and folly has been very well developed in Ecclesiastes so far, but the theme of righteousness and sin is starting to get more attention now. We considered a little bit in chapter 5, now we're considering here, we'll consider it more later on. So in verse 15, the preacher turns to his, um, oh, to his um, uh, again, to his sights, right, to his senses uh, of the vain life. He sees that something, that sometimes the righteous dies young and the wicked dies old. He sees that under the sun, sometimes righteousness does not result in prosperity and wickedness does not result in judgment. So in verse 15, he says one of the most puzzling statements in the Bible. Since righteousness will not necessarily extend your life, or wickedness will not necessarily cut your life short, he says, don't be overly righteous. Don't make yourself too wise. Do these statements strike you as strange? That's because the preacher is a good teacher. He says, do not destroy yourself. What does this mean? I thought righteousness was a virtue that we, can, that we can't get too much of, right? Too much righteousness. I thought there was no such thing as too much wisdom. So what does this mean? I had a friend once quote this verse to me because he thought I was too concerned with holiness. So he said, do not be overly righteous. Was he right? Should I just add a little bit of sin to my life? No. I don't think this is what the preacher is saying at all. It is possible to be too righteous or too wise when and only when we rely on our own righteousness and our own wisdom. 
For God, righteousness is enough. Overly righteous is legalism and not necessary, actually detrimental. It is enough for us to believe the gospel and to walk in a manner worthy of it. We don't need more than that. Okay, that's what the preacher is saying. You don't need more than what Christ has already done for you. Uh, canonically, he's saying that. It is enough for us to receive the righteousness of Christ. We don't need to add to our own righteousness and to on top of it. Is Jesus' righteousness not enough? Then why would we want to be overly righteous? Friends, I want you to realize this. All the righteousness you need, you already have in Christ. We're not righteous because we're good at obeying God. We're not righteous because we don't do what others do or because we do what others don't do. Being overly righteous is actually a sin because being overly righteous is actually born out of pride. I can do more than what Christ has done. That's what being overly righteous means. I can add to myself the work that Christ has done because Christ's work is insufficient. Do you see how that's a big problem? See how that's a big problem. So look at verse 20. He says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. We are all guilty, aren't we? Verses 21 and 22 are interesting. It says that we shouldn't listen too closely to what people say, um, to what people say about us, right? Why? Because we may hear them speaking ill of us. And you know what? They might be right. Why? Because we're sinners. So don't listen too closely to that. And then he says, don't listen too closely. Why? Because you know you yourself have spoken ill of other people. This is a picture of abundant sin. This is the reality we live in. We don't bring any righteousness to the picture. We just bring sin. We can't achieve righteousness in our strengths, but the solution, the solution, the preacher is so balanced here, is not to give up, right? The preacher tells us in verse 18, don't be overly wicked. So Indy asked me, what does that mean? Be a little wicked? Not that she would. Indy is a very righteous woman. So can we be a little wicked? No, no. He's saying... Don't fall on either side of the ditch, right? Don't be overly wicked does not mean be, be a little wicked. He's just saying, look, look, sin, don't think this way. Since I can't be righteous on my own, I'm going to go ahead and be wicked. I'm going to give up. Don't try to be righteous on your own, but don't give up on righteousness either. Righteousness is good. But then after this, the preacher brings us to a conclusion. And the conclusion of the preacher is actually quite disheartening. Verse 23, he says, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. Right? He sets off to, to search wisdom. But it was far from me. That which, has been, that which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? He's talking about wisdom here. The preacher... He's saying, 
wisdom is impossible to find. The pursuit of wisdom, the preacher is saying, is not enough, will not suffice. Why? Because sin keeps us from truly experiencing wisdom. When Paul brings, uh, when Paul brings to, uh, begins to develop his theology of sin in Romans 1, he says of the Gentiles, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Why? Because they pursued folly apart from God. They knew God, but they did not honor Him. What wisdom is so important, but sin obfuscates wisdom in our hearts. Proverbs 37. Do not be wise in your own eye. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. The preacher finishes this section sharing his own personal experience. He searched wisdom but found that his heart was entrapped by sin. Specifically, he talks about his love for women. He, find, he found no faithful women on earth, though he occasionally found faithfulness in men. He says, in a thousand men, I found one who is faithful. That's not a good number, is it? But in his relationship with women, he found none. I don't think the preacher is making a general indictment uh, for the wicked, uh, wickedness of women in this passage. I think he's indicting himself. Faithful men, he found one in a thousand. That's bad. Women, he found none. There is terrible. Why? Because he pursued women for all the wrong reasons. The preacher is sounding a lot like Solomon here, isn't he? I'm just going to leave it as that. But whose fault is this? Why has the preacher fallen short of finding wisdom? Why is his life filled with disappointment and broken relationships? Look at verse 29, the very last verse of this chapter that binds it all together. See, this alone I found. Here's his conclusion. That God made, made men upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made us for his glory, but we choose sin. The inclination of the human heart is always towards sin. This is why it is not our intellects that will get us to God. It is not our education that will get us to God. It is not our strength that will get us to God. It is not our wisdom that will get us to God. The Apostle Paul actually expands on the words of the preacher here in Romans 3 as he's bringing his theology of sin to a conclusion. He says, no one is righteous. No, not one. Romans 3, 10 through 12, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands God. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is the indictment of all humanity. Does this include me? 
It does. Does this include you? It does. Does this include the most godly person you could possibly have run across in this life? It absolutely does. So, there's no hope for righteousness. Right? Oh no. There is hope. There is a righteousness that is not achieved. There is a wisdom that is not achieved. There is a righteousness that comes to us from outside of us. It's an alien righteousness. So Paul goes from his doctrine of sin to his doctrine of salvation. And he says in Romans 3.22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So, we thought today about suffering and sin, but what is the purpose of it all? What is the purpose of suffering and sin? It is all there to remind us of our need for Christ. When we're weak, we remember that Christ is strong. When we're in sin, we remember that in Him we find forgiveness, we find strength. It is all there to remind us that we need Christ. We need Him badly to redeem us, our sin and suffering. We need Him desperately to forgive us. Christ, unlike us, has wisdom that is innate to Him. He accomplished righteousness by always rejecting sin and always choosing to obey the Father. Something that we fail to do every day. And yet he suffered. He died on the cross, paying the penalty of our sins. And in doing so, he accomplished all righteousness. And his righteousness is made available to you today. How? By faith. Not by being overly righteous or overly zealous, but by simply believing. Friend, if you reject Christ, you will not find purpose in your suffering. You will not find forgiveness for your sin. If you reject Christ, you will not find hope. You will for all eternity be separated from God. But if you believe in Him, you will find wisdom and you will find victory. You will find hope and you will find life. At this point, I want to invite the deacons to come forward. We're going to be reminded of this wonderful gospel as we